in the book of First Corinthians this morning. So if you would, in your Bibles, turn to First Corinthians chapter 6. And so we've been taking the book of First Corinthians, which is a letter written by Paul, and we've been walking through this together. And we started at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. And every week we're taking portions of this and just kind of unpacking it together. And so we have arrived then at chapter 6. So that's where we are together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'd like to just begin by reading these eight verses that we'll be covering together first. Okay, so let's all look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll read verses 1 through 8. And it says, When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And that's where we'll stop for this morning. All right, so as we've been working through this letter together, uh, just a little bit of a brief outline of where we've come. It's very very simple, but at first we had a report uh, from the church in, uh, from people who came about the church in Corinth and then directly met with Paul and gave a report about who the church was, how they were doing, things going on, because Paul knew them. Paul knew them well. He spent a year and a half with them, and so there's a report brought to Paul about things happening there, and the first report that he wants to address is that they've been quarreling with one another, which is not okay. They've been quarreling, there's been disunity among one another, and Paul seeks to address this, and he does this in this first portion, which is chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, all the way through chapter 4, verse 21. So we've already covered that together. Next, there was another report brought to Paul about the people, and this report was about immorality in the church, specifically sexual immorality in the church. This began in chapter 5, verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. So where do we find ourselves? Right at the end of that, right, right, right still dealing with this issue. And then, beginning in chapter 7, which is coming up here pretty soon, there is a letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul, and he begins dealing with some of the issues they brought up. Okay? But this is where we are. What maybe is a summary of what's been happening here so far? Well, the people clearly have a big issue, and the big issue they have is pride and boasting. We've been covering this in pretty good detail. Their issue is that they are a prideful people who boast. And in their boasting, this has led to uh, particular immoralities in the church, sexual immoralities, okay? So ultimately, Paul will say to them, I wanted to address you as spiritual people, but I couldn't. 
I had to address you as something other than spiritual mature people. I had to address you as infants in Christ. I had to talk to you like kids. You're not mature as you should be. And so he's talking to them in this way. So here's kind of the progression of what's happened. Their spiritual immaturity has led to something. And it has led to pride and boasting. And this pride and boasting has left immoralities in the church unchecked. Why? Why, why might that be? Because someone who is proud, naturally, is not going to check themselves as they should. And isn't that how it works? Your pride and your boasting, they make you blind to things happening in your own life. And if the general demeanor of the church is prideful, boasting, then sin in the church is going to go unchecked. Because they think, well, we're better than that. Surely that's not happening here. And even the stuff that is happening that's very plain, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So actually, they boast in the very things that they should have been concerned about, such as the man who had his father's wife. Pretty bad situation. They didn't seem to think much of it. So this is the progression. So why is it then that they have this unchecked sin, immorality in the church? Uh, Well, it's because of their pride, which ultimately was because they were spiritually immature. So I just wanted to, as we start, recognize from a perspective, just a standpoint, their lack of spiritual maturity has caused all of this. This is the issue. So you have a spiritually immature church. It's going to lead to itself working out in different sin issues, complications. Okay, so if we want to be a unified church, as the scriptures call us to be, where must we begin? With the individual growing in their maturity in Christ. Because the church is only going to be as mature as the church. Because the church is the people. So we shouldn't expect anything other than that. Okay, so you have problems arise in the church and it's due to immaturity. What do we target? Well, the issue? Well, certainly. But if we only attack the issue, deal with the issue, we've not dealt with the root. And so more issues are sure to come. And we can probably be certain that the issue we're trying to deal with, we're not going to deal with appropriately. Right? Because if you have immaturity happening in the church, are you going to address sin issues appropriately? What do you think? Probably not. Wouldn't you agree? Something's happening, and it's like, it's like a bunch of kids that get together. When kids have issues together, do we say, well, sort it out. I mean, I try to do this, right? But how does that go with your kids? You guys, oh, just work it out amongst yourselves. Okay, let's see how that goes. Um, but this is how it ends up happening is that if you have immature people who are trying to work out their own issues, even the working out of the issues is a problem because they don't know how to handle stuff. They're not mature enough to even know what to do. And that we don't want to be those people, right? Paul did not want the church in Corinth to be those people, which is the very reason he wrote this letter to them. If he didn't care, he would not have taken the time and the energy to write the letter to them. Would you agree? So, if he wants them to grow and mature, which clearly he does, he wants to target not only the specific issues that are a problem, but the deeper-rooted issues, and certainly he's been doing that. Okay? Um, And that's why, back in chapter 1, I'll just read this for you. Back in chapter 1, he wrote to them, and this is beginning in verse 26. So, just with that in mind, listen to what he said to them. Consider your calling, brothers, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. You were nobodies. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And you are the foolishness that he, that he chose. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And you are the weak ones. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, and you are the low and the despised, the things that are nothing. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God himself, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, that's a big, that's a high-level situation, right? It's very basic to their understanding. If you're going to be one who boasts, which they are, right? They're boast, boastful, prideful people. Make sure that you're boasting in the Lord and not yourself. And so let me just remind you about who you are exactly. You're the nothings. You're the weak ones. You're, you're the foolish ones. So don't go boasting in yourself because there's nothing to boast in. So be careful. So with that as a kind of a high-level situation, he wants to make sure that they're boasting in the proper things. And, and what is the proper thing to boast in? The Lord and the Lord only. And then again, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone thinks that, you, that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. Okay, so if you think you're wise, you need to do something here because you shouldn't be thinking that you're wise. If you think you're wise, make yourself a fool, and when you do that, that is where true wisdom is to be found. Humble yourself before the Lord, right? Okay, so he then inserts this little phrase here that's very important for our understanding today, but not only today, but several things that have been happening in this letter. He uses this phrase, do you not know? Do you not know? We encountered this last week and the week before, right? Do you not know? He uses this phrase 10 times in 1 Corinthians. 10 times in 1 Corinthians. He only uses this phrase 12 total times in all of his letters. So with the Corinthians, he wants to press home something in particular, doesn't he? He uses this phrase, do you not know, with them on purpose. Now, just remember, how long was Paul with them, teaching them? Longer than any church that we know specifically, a year and a half. He was with them. So when he says, do you not know? He's saying, you do know. I know that you know, because I'm the one that taught you. I know that you know, but I'm saying, do you not know? Because you're acting like you don't know. So, children, I'm going to tell you again. This is, how he's, this is how he's treating them. You should know. So, pause for a second. Are there things that you know that you know, but you do not act according to what you know? Let me say it again. Not much reaction. Are you guys tired this morning? What's, what's going on? There, there are things in your life that you know are right and wrong according to the word of God. It's very basic. But there are times when you do knowingly what is incorrect. Would you agree? So, do you not know that that's wrong? How do you answer that? Do you not know? Yes? I, do you know? 
that that's wrong? Yes, you do know that that's wrong. Then why are you acting like you don't know that that's wrong? Why? Well, because I'm immature, quite obviously. And isn't that the definition of maturity and immaturity? Acting your age. You know this, you know better, but you're, you just have no restraint on yourself. You just do whatever it is you want to do. You let your emotions override, and you just do what you want to do. But if we did what we knew we should do, regardless of how we feel about it, now that's a mature person, would you agree? And that's who Paul wants them to be. And if Paul wants them to be this way, we can imply then what? That this is the way God intends us to be, right? We are to be mature believers. And so we need to wrestle with the same things that the Corinthian church was wrestling with. We're no better than them. So if we think, what a weak church that had so many problems, and we think ourselves as better than them, guess what? You're prideful. So it turns out you're just like them. So do you not know? kind of comes with a bit of sarcasm, doesn't it? Do you not know? I know that you know. I don't know. I'm going to start using that. I, I use different words with my children. Do you not know? I know that you know. Why did you do that? Yeah, we do know. Okay, so maybe here's a summary of what, what we're about to encounter here. All right, in chapter 6, that's where we just started today. Paul will explain how their weak sinful, immature version of spirituality has caused them to neglect yet another absolutely fundamental concept of the faith. And why is this happening? Because they're immature. That's why this is happening. And you say, I, I'm going to have to bring up something else with you. We've been talking about immorality in the church and how you should go about handling that. And you didn't handle it properly to begin with. And then in, essentially he's going to say, and speaking of placing judgment on people in the church, well, let's talk about this also. And that's where we encounter chapter 6. So let's look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? That's where we'll start. So most of the time in Greek, word order doesn't really carry meaning. Okay, in, in English it does. Okay, the order you place the words in a sentence really matters because it changes the, the, the way the sentence actually operates, right? In Greek, not so much the case, but it does do something in particular and it gives us emphasis. And the very first word this starts with is dare, dare you or dare anyone or someone. Dare you? And then he begins. That, that's what starts first. So what does this already say? It's, it, it's kind of coming with the, with the force of Paul in a He's, it's kind of absurd. He can't believe that this is happening. That's why he starts this way. Is this actually happening? That you're doing this? He, he can't comprehend it, in a sense. Can't comprehend what? That when you have grievances with one another, that you go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. You ever had a grievance with someone in the church? What's going on this morning? Am I missing something? Are you with me? All right. We are in the same room, right? I'm not like, a, like an image. That you, I mean, I don't know. Here I am, here you are. Okay, I'm talking to you. All right. So as this is happening here, he says, when you have a grievance with one another. And so what we should be thinking right now is, have I ever had a grievance with someone in the church? And the answer to that is, well, yeah, I mean, depends on what you mean by grievance, but I don't always get along with people, if that's what you mean. 
And would we agree? Yes. How do you handle that? That's the question. How do you go about handling that situation then? And do you think then this has great implications that we should actually be concerned? The only reason you're going to be concerned right now is if you actually care about what the word of God says and if he has sovereignty over his church and he has ordained particular things for his church and that we should be very, very, very concerned that we do things the way that he has ordained them. There is a process involved here. We need to be careful to do things the way God ordained. Why? Because we want to please him, not because we want to earn his favor, but because we already have it and God has directed certain things to be a certain way. If you don't care, this is an indicator of something happening in your own heart. You're having an issue submitting to God's word. Okay? Now, do we care? And if we do care, let's dig into it a little bit and see what all this has for us today. It's exciting in one way, very unexciting in another way, because it's going to tell us to do things that maybe we don't want to do. So here is the test. All right. What is a grievance? It just literally, this word right here, it just means a thing. It's a very, a very general word. If someone has a thing against another person, a thing, what kind of thing? Well, when it's used in this kind of judgment language, it's, it's in reference to a legal thing. That's really what's being said. If you have a legal thing with someone else, how do you go about resolving that? Now we've become a little bit more specific. Have you ever had a legal issue with someone else in the church? Oh, that's, that's a bit more specific. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Well, in this situation in Corinth, there were some legal issues happening. And uh, they need to make sure and address them properly. So he's saying, would it be right for you to take this man to the secular courts over this particular issue? Not only over this issue, but any other issue like it that might come up among you, because that's where he's about to go with it. Would someone dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The same thing is true with this next phrase, which says, to law before the unrighteous. What is that? To law before the unrighteous. And it, it is just a reference to going to the secular governmental court system. That's what it means. Okay? So we have to then consider another question. Who or what has the authority to pass judgment on these issues? That's the big question. When an issue arises among us, who or what possesses the authority over these issues? That's the question. And so we're going to get to a question that we're going to, we're going to take that question, we're going to scale back from it, and we're going to ask a bigger question. And the question is this. What is the role of secular government in the life of the church? That's, we take that question, and then this question becomes then a subset of this larger question, right? And so if we take this issue and we pull back from it, we can actually answer a lot of questions right here. All these things that would come to play under this. Now, over the past couple of years, maybe since 2019 or so, have you wondered this question, wondered the answer to this question? What is the role of secular government in the life of the church? That's a good question to ask, don't you think? Not only relevant, but altogether a good question to ask. Why? Because it has many implications, doesn't it? We want to make sure to answer that properly. So, bookmark 1 Corinthians 6 and turn with me for a moment 
over to Romans chapter 13. So what I'd like to do is answer this bigger question from Paul's own words. Paul wrote Romans as well. So he's going to agree with himself in 1 Corinthians. I think that only makes sense. So we take what he says on a large scale, government in general, and we can make an application here to these specific law cases that they're dealing with. Does that make sense where we're headed? Okay, so Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If you're looking at it, here's what it says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's an important sentence right there. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You see judgment language? Isn't judgment what we're actually dealing with here in 1 Corinthians? For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, your own conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, and the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So, that is to say, pay all to what is owed them. If you owe taxes, pay them. If you own revenue, pay it. Respect to who respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, and so forth and so on. Okay? So, tell me, does Paul have a theology of how the church is to interact with the governmental system? Yes. The answer is yes. So, is he saying, listen, the courts are of no value. They're only secular. You are the people of God. You operate in your own little section here, so have nothing to do with secular government and court systems. Have nothing to do with that because you're God's people after all. So is he saying never have any involvement with that? I think the answer is quite obviously no. So then what is being said? How do we balance these two things? I hope you see that there's an issue to resolve here is that we're saying on one hand, don't involve the court system because they're unrighteous. And then on the other hand, they're saying every governing authority has been instituted by God himself and so you should, you should subject yourself to it, uh, not only to avoid wrath, but also for your own conscience sake. So which is it, Paul? Which would you have us do? So it's a good question. Good thing to consider. What I'd like to explain here for a moment is, is this concept, but in order to get proper perspective of it, ask this question, what is the position of believers in relationship to the secular state? That's a good question to ask. And we're reminded in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, that uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, everyone who's in high positions. Why? that we might lead peaceful and quiet lives and godly and dignified in every way. But then also, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of 
of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Both of these things are true. Okay, so we have involvement with the secular state in a sense, but in another sense, we are our own holy nation that operate independently. So both are true. We have two spheres of reality, don't we? We have secular government, which is instituted by God himself, but then we also have the church, which is a holy nation, its own thing that operates to give God glory. How do we understand the two realities? And what I'd like to suggest to you is a particular concept, and that is uh, sphere sovereignty. And I'll explain that after I read this quote here. And this is from Joe Boot. And he says, Paul is instructing us here in, First Corinthians, or in uh, excuse me, Romans 13. Paul is instructing us to obey God's ordinance, to submit to civil authorities, and fulfill our obligations until the state moves against God's norms and ordinances. If the state presumes to forbid what God commands or command what God forbids, the state has moved beyond its sphere of authority, and those who obey God must, at that point, resist such arrogant presumption. What does that mean? So here, I, let's go to that next one, Rob, if you would. Okay, so here's kind of how it works. There, there are spheres. And how we understand these spheres are, generally speaking, is that there is the individual. That's me, me, myself, and I. There is the family unit, which God has ordained. Is that correct? God has ordained the family unit. Then there is the church. Has God ordained the church as its own institution? Yes. And then there is also civil, civil government. Has God also ordained that as an institution? Indeed, he has. So we can see that there are different things operating within their own sphere. Do you see that? Who is sovereign over all of it? God is sovereign over all of it. And so how does this, how does this play, play itself out? Um, I'll give you an example of myself, okay? I am a believer, okay? And I am accountable to the Lord myself without anything else involved, without my family, without my church, without the silver government. I am responsible to the Lord myself. But that is not the only way I exist on this planet because I also am part of a family, right? Okay, so in this family, I am a father and a husband. And has God ordained certain things for fathers and husbands? Oh, yes, specifically, yes. Within this institution, now there are more responsibilities specifically for me as a father and as a husband right? Next, I am also a church member. Has God ordained certain things for church members? Has God ordained certain things for church elders? Yes, of which I am both. So I have other responsibilities laid on me now within that sphere. Additionally, I am uh, part of the United States government here in a sense, right? I'm a citizen, as are you, I think most of us, all right? So apply this to yourself. You see that there are different spheres that we operate in in this life, and God has ordained certain things within those spheres with their own flow of authority and with their own responsibilities. Do you see that? Now, what happens when, for example, the civil government reaches over into the church, let's say, and says, you can no longer meet on Sundays. You can no longer meet at all. We say, well, 
you're overstepping your reach here because the church is accountable to straight to God. Or what if the civil government reaches over into family and says, we are going to redefine what marriage is. You have overstepped your reach. The family is accountable to God, and he has defined it. And apply that all, all through those spheres, right? So then, how do we understand these things? Is that if the government is operating within, within its sphere as ordained by God, then can believers appropriately operate within that sphere that God has ordained? The answer, yes, certainly. But if we're seeking to operate outside of that sphere or the government is attempting to reach into other spheres where it doesn't belong, then because we are accountable to God, then we must say no. Okay, I'll just, I'll just break it down in, in case there's any confusion. So, for example... If uh, the, well, let's use an actual example, okay? So uh, you can meet together as a church, but you cannot sing. That's a good example, isn't it? Because that's actually what, or you can meet together and not take the Lord's Supper. Now, we would say, I understand that you're making that law. However, we are not accountable to you for that. We are accountable to God for that so sorry, you cannot tell us that we can't do those things. You are not operating within your realm that God has ordained. Now, you think you're operating in the realm that God has ordained for you, should you acknowledge that a God even exists. But regardless, you're wrong. The church is not accountable to you. The church is accountable to God. Okay? Or if the government now tells you how you are to raise your family. And you've, you've overstepped your bounds. Okay? So, is this concept making sense? If it is making sense, then we now have maybe a structure, a skeleton, to hang these other individual issues on, wouldn't you say? So, uh, I just have two more quotes for you here about this concept, and I'm indebted to Joe Boot for a lot of these things. If you want to look into more, he's, Joe Boot's part of the Ezra Institute, and so if you want to look at more of his stuff on this, it's excellent, I highly recommend it to you. Okay, so he also says this. No state has a legitimate right or authority to redefine the family, to redefine human sexuality, nor to dictate to the church how she will worship, how she will govern her members, or what private Christian schools should teach their children, nor how a man should conduct his business investment transactions, nor what an artist should paint. And then Abraham Kuyper, who is kind of the father of, of this mentality here, he says this, the sphere of the family opens itself with its right of marriage, domestic peace, education, and possession. And in this sphere also, the natural head is conscious of exercising an inherent authority, not because the government allows it, but because God has imposed it. Okay? So to be very clear, we do not operate because the government says we can. We operate because God has ordained the church to operate. Okay? The government doesn't have any ability, whether they want to or not, to impose rules on us. Okay, So should something come down the pipeline, we know where we stand. Would you agree? Okay. Just so we all are on the same page here. So what is the role of government in the Christian life? Is it ever permissible for Christians or the church to engage in or with civil government? Of course, the answer to that is, well, yes, God has actually instituted that. However, 
we must understand that the standards of God are not subject to the ever-changing opinions of men who rule over secular governments. Do you agree with that? Good. You can say if you agree. That's a good thing. You know, that's actually an encouraging thing. Because I don't know. I mean, do you agree with me? Okay. Oh, all right. Okay. I mean, I didn't know. I hoped, but I didn't know. You can tell me. It's good. Because then actually the person next to you says, oh, good, I'm not alone in this. Right? We are not alone in this. So herein lies the importance of the judgment of the saints. The judgment of the saints is important. Paul has passed judgment on this man who had his father's wife. That's a judgment issue. Remember we talked about that? He has done something evil, and there are no criminal charges to be brought on him from the governing authorities for that particular issue. Okay, but the church must pass judgment within their sphere of authority and responsibility. We are responsible. The church is responsible to pass judgment. And if we neglect passing judgment, then we're not doing what God has told us to do. So to not hold sin accountable in the church is to ignore what God has told us to do. Would you agree? So this is why judgment of the saints, then, is very important. Okay, let's go to verse 2. We'll take verses 2 through 6 together. So when we read, then, when one of you has agreements against, uh, grievance against his brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now we know what he's not meaning, right? That was, the, that was the intention there. We know what he's not meaning, and the rest will unpack what he actually is meaning, okay? We know that he's not saying, because the government is useless. I, I know sometimes we think that maybe, but the government, it's not what he's saying. He's not saying government absolutely useless. It's only bad. It's only secular. Stay away from it. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying there is a particular situation here that you're not handling appropriately. So how then should we handle it, Paul? That's what we're asking. And we go to verse 2 next. Or, do you not know? I know that you know that the saints will judge the world. The world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Okay, so there we have this section. Here's what this is. This is an argument from the greater situation to the lesser situation, and this is how it works. So, if believers are to judge the world, that is within the realm of what? The eternal but yet human realm, okay? We are to judge the world. And he actually takes it beyond that, and he says, do you not know that you were to judge angels? So he takes it even beyond the realm of human judgment. He takes it to the supernatural world of judgment, and he says, don't you know that you're to judge angels, which is also an eternal realm? then how can we conclude that we are incapable of judging these matters which are in the temporary human realm? So he's saying, do you not see that this is outrageous, that you can't do this unless you don't know? Oh, do you not know? 
Oh, maybe you don't know, but I know that's not the case because I know that you know because I taught you these things. And if you are to judge the world, if you are to judge angels, how then have you concluded that you can't judge these trivial matters? And maybe we're starting to see the point. Where does all that come from? Well, ultimately, if you're wondering about this whole judgment of the world thing and the judgment of angels thing, I think that's not all that complicated to wrap our minds around. I went ahead and made a summary here. This is what's being said. The ability of believers to judge all things comes not by means of our own superiority or wisdom, but because by the Spirit of God, we have the mind of Christ, the one who is to judge all the earth. Meaning, our judgment is the judgment of Christ, who is the judge. So when we judge, we're judging with the mind of Christ, which has been given to us in God by the Spirit, a renewed mind. We have the mind of Christ, do we not? We should have the mind of Christ. We do have the mind of Christ, but we are growing in the mind of Christ. So we have the mind of Christ, and when we use the mind of Christ, whose mind are we using? The judge of all the earth. Okay? So we will reign and rule with him in judgment, but when we judge, we are actually judging by his judgment. That's how it should be. So I'm not passing judgment on you based on my own, whatever I think is right and wise. I'm judging you based on the standards of Christ's judgment here. Right? Does that make sense? Hard, I mean, hard topics, right? But necessary topics, maybe difficult topics, but fundamental topics that we need to consider together, right? So where does our ability to pass judgment come from? So don't you see then how this section is connected to what came beforehand, judging this man who committed sin in the church? Because the church was basically saying, you had relations with this man's wife, which is bad. Bad according to who? Bad according to the word of God. And so for you to then not judge it according to what God has already judged, you are not doing what God has called you to do. Right? So if God has judged something, you are to then say, Lord, I agree with the judgment you have made on this thing. And I'm actually going to follow through with it now. And so we actually have to do something with it. The Corinthians were doing nothing with it. Maybe God said it's bad. Maybe God didn't say it's bad. Either way, I mean, it seems like a lot of work to have to go through this whole big process of getting this guy in trouble. It's just too much work, right? The church is supposed to be fun and easy, I thought, right? I don't know whoever told you that. I don't know. That's, that's like the farthest thing from the truth, okay? This is very difficult. The church is, doesn't exist for our, our fun and excitement and just whatever kind of entertainment that we want to have. That's not the point of the church. God has instituted the church for a particular reason and a cause, and we have an end goal, and that end goal is holiness, Maturity in Christ, holiness. So if you're not concerned with holiness, you don't know the point of your existence. God doesn't want our holiness only as individuals. God wants our holiness as a church. So if God has passed judgment on certain things, we are to follow through with the judgment God has given. It's not our judgment. We haven't come up with this stuff. We haven't decided this stuff is good and bad. God has decided this stuff is good and bad. And if we do have the mind of Christ by the Spirit of God, then we're agreeing with God's judgment. Okay? I've just said the same thing in three different ways, I think. But I just want to make sure that we're all understanding what's happening here. So 
what type of issues then are being addressed? What type of issues do we deal with among us? And what type of issues do we actually go and deal with in the court system? Because this does not mean that you should never be involved with the court system. That's, that would be an incorrect application. There are times when that is necessary. God has ordained that, that that exists, and that governing authorities exist. That's okay. That's, it's good at times. But what about these other things, and why is Paul upset with them for taking them to court before unbelievers? We first of all should understand that these are trivial cases, meaning insignificant cases of cases of little importance in a sense, at least in the world's eyes. And if we are to judge these grand things, how can we not judge these little things? That makes sense, doesn't it? If we are to judge these big grand things, angels, then how can we not judge these little things going on, these grievances among one another? How can we not do that? A dispute between brothers is another way it's said in the text. A dispute between brothers. A contention, a difference, a distinction. And then he says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle this kind of dispute between the brothers? I thought you were wise. Isn't that what they were saying about themselves? They have all wisdom and all gifts and all powers. Oh, he'll get to that. But right now what he's saying is, I thought you were wise. You were saying that you're wise, but is there no one wise enough among you to settle this thing and you have to take it to the court? He says, I say this to your shame. To your shame. Are we those who are seeking unity with one another? Should be. Then there should be some characteristics that bind us together such as kindness and humility and gentleness and caring for each other. Would you agree that that's true? So, why can't you settle this? He says, I tell, I'll tell you why. I already told you, but I'll tell you again. It's because you're immature children and you're not behaving properly. I know that you know what to do, but you're not doing it. So one believer had a dispute with another believer, something they obviously couldn't settle, right? And they, instead of having the church help settle the issue, that is keeping it a family matter between brothers, they take the issue outside the family to be settled among those who do not even know God. And this is what we've been talking about maybe the past four weeks now, about the process of church discipline. If you have something against your brother, what do you do? Well, you take him to court, obviously. Oh, okay, that's how we're going to do it. No, that's not, that's not what the scripture says, is it? If you have something against your brother, what do you do first? Step one, I go to my brother, and you attempt to resolve it that way. Okay, if that doesn't work, then you take him to court. No, no. You take one or two others with you, right? Isn't that what the scripture says? So that every charge may be established upon the evidence of two or three witnesses. No, that's, that's exactly what's being said. And then we go through the process leading to taking it to the church. And if you won't even listen to the church, and if it's an obvious sin issue that is unrepentant, then we know what to do, right? 
This has been the theme for the past several weeks. But what seems to be happening is that there is judgment passed without going through any process whatsoever. You have wronged me. I'm real upset about it. And I know where I'm going to have the favor in, in, or the situation in my favor. I'm going to take you to the court. And they'll demand that you give me what you owe me. Oh, so now it's, it's starting to be more of kind of an internal character issue. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. How is that? Why is that? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves, you wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Okay, so to have disputes that need to be settled, would we agree that that's one thing? And we are going to have disputes with one another that need to be settled. We should just acknowledge that. It's not about not having disputes, even though we shouldn't be having them, if we truly had the mind of Christ and the heart of God. But the reality is, is that we're going to have things with each other. And so long as we're going through the proper process to judge these matters, all is okay, but we want submission to God in these things, right? The issue then is the way these are being handled. And Paul doesn't have, Paul's not okay with the way they're handling this. So he says to have lawsuits at all with one another, you're already defeated before the lawsuit even begins. If this is your heart about it, and I'd like to just explain why that is. So it may be the case in this situation that the wealthy or the influential people of the Corinthian church were taking the poor and non-influential people to court over trivial issues. And as they did, the courts would have favor on the person of class because the system was unjust. And they knew that. But Paul says to them, why not just suffer wrong or be defrauded? So here's what those words mean. To suffer wrong means to be wounded or injured, that is, to actually endure loss. And to be defrauded means to hold back what is due. Right? These are what the actual, these are what the Greek words mean, okay? So, to be wounded, to be injured, or to endure loss. So, let's just use money. Money is the easiest example here, okay? You said you were going to buy something from me, and so I went ahead and gave it to you, and now you owe me the money, okay? You owe me $1,000. And now you come and you say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm working on it. I'll get it to you next week. I'm working on it. I'll get it to you next week. I'm working on it. I'll get it to you next week. And then this continues to go. Or you say, wait a minute, you didn't. I don't think you gave that to me. I, wait, that's not the price we settled on. I thought you said 500. And all of a sudden, you start to have an issue. Because you owe me something. You owe me. And I'm so upset about it that I'm going to take you to the courts and they're going to demand that you give me what you owe me. You owe me. And you will give me what I am owed. That's the heart of the person. But Paul says, why not rather suffer your loss? Why not just let it go? Hmm. 
Well, because they owe me. I don't think you understand, Paul. They owe me. And he says, well, what I'm telling you is why not just suffer the loss? Why? I don't know if I can deal with that. I'm a little too prideful for that. No, no, no. They made a bad decision. They're not following through. They're going to pay. They owe me. They will pay. Oh, okay. So that's how we want to deal with things. I think here's the heart of the issue. They did not love each other to the extent that they were willing to suffer loss for the other person's sake. They wanted what there was due. Why? Because they're children. They're immature. Paul already covered this in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 11 through 13. To the present hour, we hunger, we thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted, we're homeless, we labor, working with our hands. And when reviled, we bless in return. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. And we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Okay? Maybe Paul's unique in that situation. Maybe Paul's heart for this kind of stuff is different than the heart of the rest of the scriptures. How about 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you might obtain a blessing. Okay? This continues over several different passages, and you can see some listed there. But where I'd really like to take you that I think we can discern the heart of the issue for our application today is actually found by the words of Jesus in, the, in Matthew chapter 18. And so we're going to finish our time together right there, okay? Why, the question is, as you're turning there, Matthew 18, why not rather suffer wrong or the loss? That's, a, that's actually a question. Why not rather suffer the loss? Is that, is that already our hearts? I think this is a difficult one. Would you agree? Why not rather be defrauded? Well, because defrauding is wrong. They need to give me what they owe me. It's wrong. And because I'm a good Christian person, right? Because I want to do what's right, I'm going to make sure and hold them accountable that they pay what they owe. Because I love them and sometimes the truth hurts. But that's not what Paul says is the right thing to do. Why not rather suffer the loss? And why not rather be defrauded? We're going to look at a parable of Jesus, and I think it comes through very, very plainly. Matthew 18, 23 through 35. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he begged to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot of money, okay? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all they had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees and he was imploring him, have patience with me. I'll pay you everything. I promise. And out of pity, 
Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and he forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a minuscule amount, a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. And he said, what? Pay what you owe. Pay what you owe. And he demanded it of him. So his fellow servant, he fell down and he pleaded with him. And he said, have patience with me and I will pay you. But what did the servant do? The servant who had been forgiven, what did he do? He refused. And he went and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Why? Because you will pay me what you owe me. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were distressed, as we should be, by the way. And they went and they reported to the master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and he said, You wicked servant! I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the image here of this parable? Someone who has been forgiven, someone who has been given mercy ought to then be a forgiving and merciful person. And when you demand that someone give you what you owe, you are showing that that is not your heart. You have been forgiven and this has not transformed you. You have had mercy given to you and this has not transformed your heart at all. You are just as wicked but instead, how it should be, how should it be? That your heart is transformed and that you want to forgive freely. If you are demanding that someone give you what you owe, you are like this wicked servant. And actually, Paul's words here at the end of our passage, he said, instead, you actually yourselves wrong and defraud your own brothers. But the person said, no, 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 no. I'm not the one defrauding or wronging anybody. They defrauded and wronged me. I'm just holding them accountable. But Paul says, no, 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 you misunderstand. When you hold them accountable and say, pay what you owe, you are defrauding and wronging them. How? Go back, if you would, Rob, to a previous slide. Again, back another one. Right there to suffer wrong and to be defrauded, to endure loss and to hold back what is due. And what Paul is saying is that when you demand that they pay you what is due, you are actually withholding from them what you owe them. When you demand that they pay you what they owe you, when you demand it and you forcibly demand it, you are withholding from them what you owe to them. And what could we possibly owe to them? What do you think? Love, that's right. Love is our only outstanding debt. Isn't it? Isn't that what Paul said? Owe no one anything except to love them. Love one another and thereby fulfill the law. And so when we make forceful demands of one another, we are defrauding them. 
And Paul says, so when you go out to court, this is why you've already lost. You've lost in your own hearts. And the world is looking in on you to be light. You should be light shining in darkness, but instead you're darkness in the midst of darkness. They ought to see that you are different and that people forgiven forgive others. I hope you see the heart of what's being said here this morning and in this passage. And that while there are complicated issues to, to sort out as far as our interaction with government, things like that, I agree. There's a heart issue at play, isn't there always? We ought to be a merciful people. And so the question today is, uh, in Jesus' parable, which kind of servant are you? The one who has been forgiven and then turns and looks at everyone else and says, you will do what you must do for me. Or are we compassionate? and forgiving, and merciful. This is what Christ has called us to be. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great forgiveness that we have been given in Christ Jesus. You did not look at us and say, pay what you owe. But instead, we, we have a very different situation. Someone has, has, has paid what we owe in our place. And you gave that. You gave your son for that, rather than simply looking at us and demanding that we pay what we owe. But you have forgiven us. You have had mercy on us. You've had grace on us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a transformed people who are light in the midst of darkness, shining forth in our character that has been renewed, redeemed, and that as they see our love for one another, they might see and know that we are truly your disciples because we have love for each other. Lord, help us and forgive us and give us wisdom as we walk through all these issues together. But what we desire is to be a people who give you praise, who please you, and who judge with right judgment. We pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen.